1: It's always one of the most unique rivalry games in college football, and this year it's also a top 10 showdown for the first time in a decade. The stakes are sky high for Florida Georgia, with this year's version serving as an eliminator of sorts for both the SEC East and the college football playoff. On today's show, we'll hand out midseason superlatives and dive into this week's matchups with FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry. Plus, senior Tyler Jordan goes in-depth on the growth of the offensive line and what it means for a Jacksonville native to play in the Florida-Georgia game. But first, while many expected the Bulldogs to be among the nation's lead entering this weekend, few thought the Gators would be on equal footing. But ever since the gut-punch loss to Kentucky, Florida has continued subverting expectations at nearly every turn. So to kick off this week's roundtable with Chris and Scott, we asked them to give us their biggest surprise through the halfway point of the campaign.
0: I just think that this is a, a team that's in harmony with, with each other. The players are reflective of the coach, and his excitement, uh, both pregame and postgame, spills over and is evident with the players. Um, I think this obviously goes back, and I know Scott talked a lot about this in the in the spring and heading in the season about fun. Dan Mullen talks about wanting these players to have fun and to enjoy the wins. That means all of them. That means a Charleston Southern win. Uh, it means a Colorado State win. And it certainly means the win at Vanderbilt when they came from 18 down on the road last time. So just the way this team, the team and the, and the coach seem to be as one. And I know it's probably sounds a little, I don't know, maybe a little out there a little bit, but, um, I think it has something to do with, uh, how, how this team is playing, uh, the confidence they have and the fact that uh, they were able to get down by 18 on the road and really uh, never blink an eye. And Mullen showing the kind of passion he showed in that game in that one like kind of hectic moment with the personal fouls last week, in v- or excuse me, two weeks ago in Vanderbilt. I think the players really love that stuff. I think they love their coach. I think they love the staff. I think they love playing for them, and I think it shows up every Saturday so far. You asked what's the biggest surprise
2: to me. It's, it's really just how quick the turnaround has happened for the program because the low point, was a year ago after the Georgia game uh when they got demolished in Jacksonville uh Jim McWayne exited the stage what the the next night and the program was really in a place of uh just a lot of question marks I mean it was in kind of a disarray point and it was it was almost hard to imagine how quickly it got there considering they had back to back SEC titles so then it went down in 2017 a year ago And you're wondering, wow, what's the climb going to be back for this program? And here we are a year later. And really, because of Dan Mullen and all that stuff that Chris just spoke about, here they are going into the Georgia game. And they win this game. They're clearly in the National College Football Playoff conversation. A lot quicker than anyone really thought possible, certainly myself. You know, when you think about georgia Florida, I go back to National Signing Day. Georgia had a class that people were saying this is the best recruiting class in the history of college football. Mullen had his traditional first-year class. It just seemed like the gap was huge between the two programs, considering what happened on the field last year. And here we are. I don't know what's going to happen Saturday, but I don't expect it to be anything as bad as last year for the Gators. And if they win, then we're talking about a whole different – uh the final month of the season, but uh, the the turnaround has really caught me off guard to some degree.
1: You know, the last couple of weeks, there's been a lot of these mid season, all American reports, mid season, all sec, those very uh, topical lists of people trying to quickly break down the first half of the year. I want to know for you guys, from a Gator perspective, your offensive and defensive MVPs for the first half of the season. Let's see now
0: offensive and defensive MVPs. Well, I mean, you look at the injury to Malik Davis and what Lamichael Ryan has done in something of a uh, of a featured uh, back situation. Now I know he I know he takes turns with Jordan Scarlett back there, but I think some of the plays that this guy has made, making guys miss the play he made at the at the end of the half of the Vanderbilt game that gave the Gators a feel a much needed field goal and momentum going on locker room. I, I think right now he's the offensive MVP, and that's no disrespect to jordan scarlett but i think michael p ryan has made a bunch of big plays for this football team he scored two touchdowns rushed for 85 yards i believe against lsu had over 200 yards rushing and receiving in that vanderbilt comeback i'm looking at him right now especially given what he did last year which um, i don't think we can point to a, a great year for the michael p ryan or a great year for any gator offensive player last season and then defense is is an easy one uh, i'll say the defensive mvp is and i'll let scott just pick it up from there go ahead well I I think we're in
2: agreement. Jakai Polite yeah. is is gonna be your defensive MVP and the guy leads the country, you know, four force fumbles. Uh at least two of those have been game changing at Tennessee and against L S U. Uh seven sacks in his last five games and I think we're just seeing a guy just tapping into his potential. He's going from kind of a unknown to someone who is now being considered, you know, a possible future first round draft choice and it's kind of relegated CC Jefferson to a, uh, a reserve role Mm -hmm. going into this season. CC Jefferson was maybe the most prominent member of this team, at least publicly, you know, a guy who people were familiar with, the fans were familiar with, who has been a good player for the Gators. Uh, But CC, you know, he's got some work to do if he's going to reestablish himself as a leader of that defensive front, because right now that's Ja'Kai Polite.
0: And again, this speaks to something else. Maybe that I was speaking about what about the unknown, and you just don't know who the who's going to respond to the newness of it all, and then taking advantage of opportunities. Because I think you, if you had asked me uh, before the season started, which five of these five guys is going to be a superstar on the defensive line, I may not have mentioned Ja'Kai Polite. Mm-hmm. And given the situation with um at the running back with George Scarlett coming back after the year suspension. Malik Davis coming back from his broken leg and being cleared, and then uh, a hot shot uh, true freshman and Damian Pierce. Uh, you know, Michael P Ryan's not maybe the guy that I would have mentioned. It would have been the person stepping out. So it, it, coaches push different buttons on different players, and these this staff has gotten to these two guys and is certainly getting the best out of those two. Give Felipe Frank's credit for recognizing some stuff relative to how he's using Michael P Ryan uh, with some of those uh, uh, swing passes or those. Uh, RPO uh, plays and what have you. And Ja'Kai Polite, I mean, we would have talked about Jabari Zaniga, We would have talked about CeCe Jefferson. We would have talked about TJ Slayton. Ja'Kai Polite off the edge is an awfully devastating uh, image, not just for the Gators, but for the Southeastern Conference right now.
1: So everyone's in agreement on the offensive and defensive MVP. I'm curious if maybe I can split the vote with you guys because this is kind of a broad question. I think there's a lot of different answers for it. I I thought of a few just myself right now, but if I asked you to tell me the most impressive newcomer for the first half of the year, not freshmen, so that's why this is interesting, because it also includes transfers, guys that weren't here or didn't play in 2017, who would win that crown for the first half for each of you?
2: You know, for me, I think Van Jefferson's going to get the nod. Uh, he doesn't have exceptional stats at this stage of the season, but I think his importance as a veteran safety valve for Felipe Franks has been huge. You know, he's, I think, uh, with three touchdown catches, or maybe four now, had the big one against Vanderbilt uh, that got the game closer. And, you know, going back to the whole MVP discussion, I mean, I kind of like Chris. I think Michael P Ryan probably is deserving of that award, but you know, it's not going to be popular with some fans because Felipe Franks is still under scrutiny so much. But if you just go, if you look at Felipe Franks and you say, if his stats were more along last year's lines, his touchdowns, and interceptions, let's say instead of being fifteen to five, it was ten to ten, the Gators are probably more like four and three right now. You know, he he's improved a lot, but I think a lot of that improvement goes back to your newcomer question. I think Ben Jefferson has been critical. For him in some situations, you know that's just the one that kind of jumps out at me. There's, but again, I don't know if it's a runaway case. Chris may have his own guy here.
0: No, I got my own guy. In fact, I mean, I'm, and as usual, I'm going to cheat going in the season. We, I'm sure a lot of people were saying, "Oh my God, what are we going to do to replace Eddie Pinero and Johnny?" Because mm-hmm. those two—that was probably the best one-two uh, uh, kicker-punter punch in college football last year, even though the team was four and seven. Well, between Tommy Townsend, obviously Johnny's brother. And Evan McPherson, the true freshman kicker, th- it's not even an issue anymore. I mean, Johnny Townsend, some of, or excuse me, Tommy Townsend, some of his punts, uh, whether it be inside the 20 punts or some of his flip-the-field boomers. Uh, did he have a 73-yarder 70, in, in a game or... maybe against LSU? Um, Evan McPherson has missed one field goal, and I think we can debate on whether or not that was a missed field goal. <laughs> replay looked like it did go over the inside the top of that right upright. But what, what those two guys have, have given you know provides some confidence uh, nice. if things don't work out and, and in the development of this offense and the development of this defense field position, be it, uh, right there for everyone to see or hidden field position when it comes to, to punts and what have you has given this team confidence. And, uh, as far as Evan McPherson, we don't know what he's going to do in a spotlight with, you know, 10 seconds left or something going on late in the fourth quarter. We haven't seen yet, yet, but I'm sure we'll see it before the end of the season. And, Uh, Right now, I think you have every reason to think uh, you you could be encouraged by the possibilities of these guys, not just this season, but um, in future seasons. I think uh, uh, special teams are in really, really good hands, an important, important element of the game. And we all know how when Dan Mullen got here, he put his foot down and said special teams are – I don't know if he said it like this, but special teams aren't going to suck here anymore, guys. (laughs) And, and they obviously they obviously
1: do not. Yeah, anyone who listens to this podcast consistently knows how infrequently Chris and I agree on pretty much anything, which is why it's astonishing to say that my answer was also going to be a cheat to my own question. I was going to say if neither one of you said it, I was going to say it's a split answer for me. It's Townsend and it's McPherson. So I don't know, uh, you know, if we've maybe reversed the polarity of the earth today, but Chris and I are somehow in exact lockstep agreement.
0: The sound you're about to hear is me leaving.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We're going to assume that Chris didn't actually leave and that he's still there for this next question. Because it's an important question as we turn the page and get into this weekend. Guys, it's Florida, Georgia. The hype level on this game is out of control. SEC Nation and College Game Day will both be at the same site for the first time ever. It's a top 10 game for the first time in a decade uh, can you just talk about the hype level for this game and how that's affecting the buildup?
2: Well, I, this is the way, to me, Florida Georgia is supposed to be. It, it was for, you know, certainly a lot of the uh, Rick and Urban Meyer and Spurrier years, uh, Georgia was good. And, of course, Gators still dominated the rivalry. But this year, well, you, you put it in perspective. Both teams are in the top 10 for the first time, I think, since in 10 years. Uh, This game has SEC East implications all over. Uh, We're talking about national playoff implications. Uh, You know, Georgia, you got to remember, they were in the national title game last year, took Alabama to overtime before losing. People expected Georgia to be the the class of the SEC East. And two weeks ago, you know, they were riding high. And after that loss to LSU, I think it, it changed some people's perceptions of the matchup. Obviously, Florida... Has continued to win since that early season loss against Kentucky, and here they are going to meet. And what is always, Adam, as you well know, it's always one of the the highlight games on the schedule. But just like any of the years when Florida, Florida State, or Florida Tennessee, uh, when both programs were prominent in the top twenty five and national title conversation, it just makes it that much more fun. And that's the what we're getting here. A little ahead of schedule, and you know Kirby Smart and. And Dan Mullen were both on the uh, SEC coaches conference call earlier. And, you know, someone asked them about they're both at destination programs now and they're both early in their tenures. And the and when you look at it that way, this, this is a, a series that they could be in charge of these programs for a while, meeting in big matchups like this. And, and both said they're fine with that because, uh, you know, that means some security for them, obviously, but also means they're doing well. The programs are are compete for championships year in and year out. And I think this game, uh, when this, those circumstances exist, that's why you have the, uh, the SEC Nation and, and game day there. and It's going to basically be the, the game of the week with college football on Saturday.
1: In terms of the matchup itself, I'm curious which aspects of it stand out to you guys. Where do you think this game is going to be decided relative to Georgia's strengths and Florida's as well?
0: For me, it would be... Florida has to control Georgia's ground game. Um, I think if they get to the point where you got to make uh, Jake Fromm beat you, I think you're put yourself in an advantageous situation. But like anything else, I mean, what Florida's done where they've done well protecting the football. Now I say that when they're coming off their worst game at protecting the football, but, uh, what would the score of the, of a 10 point road win at Vanderbilt have been if Florida hadn't turned the ball over three times? It probably would have been somewhat, uh, uh, similar to how. Uh, Georgia destroyed Vanderbilt. I think it was 41 13 or something like that. But if, if Florida can take care of the football, I believe they'll be in the football game, uh, at the end. But I think they would much rather have, uh, Jake Fromm having to go back and throw the ball to beat them versus controlling the clock and, you know, giving the ball to Elijah, uh, Hollyfield and letting them kind of dictate things on the ground. But at the same time, of course, in protecting the ball offensively, Florida's going to have to move the football and Georgia. As an excellent defense, but I think some elements of that defense were kind of exposed uh, by LSU, and certainly uh, uh, to the case of, of of running the ball on them. I think uh, that I think LSU had about 275 yards rushing game. I know one big chunk of that came on a long run uh, by uh, LSU quarterback Joe Burrow uh, late in the game, but that still counts. And certainly Felipe Franks is capable of of running running the football, um, running out of trouble, and maybe gaining some big yards with his. Giraffe-like, gangly stride. So, uh, uh, protect, protect the ball. Don't put yourself uh, behind. I mean, I, I, I don't think this Georgia's the kind of defense Florida is going to come from behind against, and Florida's offense is not the kind of offense that is coming back against a, an opponent that's uh, as strong defensively as Georgia um, has shown that it can be.
2: Yeah, I think the matchup that I'll be watching closely is going to be really. I mean, it's the oldest, oldest as, old as the leather helmet. If I've not used that statement on here before but it's going to be in the the trenches man i mean both coaches were asked this week about the importance of the running game how how's that going to shake out and neither one blinked i mean they both said that's that's a key in in each other's views and you look at the running game with these two elijah holyfield and deandre swift both guys with more than 350 yards rushing same as Lamichael michael p Ryan and jordan scarlett brian harrian gives georgia a third Option that's Damian Pierce gives the Gators a third option. Neither one of these schools are going to have a thousand yard rusher this year. They rely on running back by committee, and I think the the one that is able to slow down that rushing attack the best, you know, the opposing defense is going to have a chance to win. uh And offensively, if you're, I go along with what Chris says. If you are going to look at one key player who may have more impact on this game than any other, I think it's going to be Jake Fromm. Uh, You know, he's coming off his worst game against LSU, got fan base in the
0: uproar. A lot of people are calling for Justin fields. Don't be surprised to see him, by the way. Uh, Maybe maybe a little more than we've seen him already, especially coming off the open day.
2: Yeah, you know that Fromm is going to be motivated. He's got stats pretty similar to Felipe Franks. I mean, they both thrown for 1,406 yards for Franks, 1,409 for Fromm, 15 touchdowns, five interceptions for Franks, 13 and four for Fromm, uh, but the passing efficiency for Fromm is a lot higher. Uh They rely on him, I think, more to make things happen than perhaps Florida has on Franks. And if the game is going the way the Gators want it to on Saturday, that means Jake Fromm is going to have to make some plays, and, and that's where uh, being able to contain him and maybe getting – a turnover or two and avoiding what happened up at Vanderbilt and losing that battle is going to be so important for the Gators.
0: If the game is going the way the Gators don't want it to, uh, Fromm's stats will look similar to what they were a year ago when he threw seven passes and completed four other, and it was set, it was 21 to nothing, uh, less than eight minutes into the game. So, um, make Jake Fromm beat you because he's shown like, uh, under duress, uh, maybe he's capable of making some mistakes.
1: Well, it's interesting too, because you mentioned last year from going four of seven, Georgia wins by a ton. If you go back to the really surprising years where Florida beat Georgia with Treon Harris at quarterback, his numbers were almost the same.
0: Right, exactly. You had two guys going for over 190 yards in in that one game. That's exactly right. So that's, that's never a position you, you want to be in defensively. And certainly that's when the Gators were in defensively last year. I don't think they're going to be in that situation this week, but, uh, Georgia is going to be a highly motivated football team, given what happened to them in Baton Rouge
1: two weeks ago. One of you mention the wild card of Justin Fields. I think that's interesting, too, because they're coming off an open week. So is Florida. We know the Gators probably have a couple trick plays worked up that we'll see in some form. But it's not so much a trick play as maybe a consistent presence. If they start using more of fields in the wildcat, that's a, a totally different look, and they started doing that against LSU. If they worked on that more in the last two weeks, that could be something Florida hasn't seen a lot of that could be really difficult for the, for them to, to defend on the fly.
0: Yeah, but don't think that Todd Grantham isn't anticipating something along those lines, and Florida had an extra week to work on a plan uh, defensively to counter that, but you're absolutely right. We don't know what the guy's capable of because he's only played in, what, seven games or what have you, and played limited time in that, but um, he was the number one prospect in the country for a reason and uh, dual threat quarterback. So certainly get it, getting on the edge, he can keep the ball and take off or certainly he can make something happen with his arm. But I fully anticipate some uh, increased role for him in this game, given what happened uh, against LSU two weeks ago.
1: It's going to be interesting. There's no question about it. And of course we'll be here next week to uh, discuss the, the fallout right now. I want to turn our attention to our PAT this week, which was inspired by a, a, a chance encounter I had on Sunday when I went to see Sally Field speak and actually had a chance to meet her. And uh, if anyone follows me on Twitter, they've probably seen the picture. Uh, really exciting because I love Mrs. Doubtfire. I love Forrest Gump. And I wasn't so much starstruck by that experience as uh, my mom was very starstruck being the same age, you know. Uh, but it made me think about times I was really starstruck. And I was thinking, you know what? I wonder what Kristen Scott would have to say about that. They've interacted with tons of Really unique people over the years, big big stars all across the spectrum. So I pose that question to you now: your biggest starstruck moment in your life. Have you ever heard of Gidget? I know about Gidget, but I didn't know about Gidget until I think Sunday when people your age were talking about it. Have
0: you ever heard of the Flying Nun?
1: Also, had not heard about that until Sunday night when oh. people talked about it. Your age.
0: So I mean, you really, you really don't even know about like Sally Field, then, do you? Adam? even though you were so starstruck about meeting her.
1: Now you did not listen to the question. I said, I was not that starstruck by meeting. Oh, her. Okay. I
0: think I told you guys a story once. Um, when my brother won uh, his Oscar, we got to sit at a dinner table with Steven Spielberg. And you got to understand this. I was 18 and he was Steven Spielberg was, I believe like a 20, 27 or 28 years old. And had just made, a uh, you know, jaws and close encounters of the third kind. So he was, he was on the fast track. I, I do remember uh, uh, my mom being a little – she knocked some lint off uh, Steven Spielberg's coat. <laughs> and my brother like was mortified, and uh, uh, and I think Steven Spielberg turned to him and said, this is like having my Jewish mother here. Um, <laughs> and yet I, I think I was struck, to be honest with you. Um, I met John Wayne, came and spoke at a convention at the Broadmoor Hotel in Colorado Springs that my father was running, and we used to go out there a couple times, every other, every few years or so. And he was the keynote speaker. And uh, I do have a regret about not having our picture taken with him because they they brought the the kids in to all meet him. And he walked around and shook everyone's hand. And literally at that time, which I think probably was in three years of when he finally did die of lung cancer. I mean, he he was truly bigger than life. And I was probably 15 or 16 years old at the time, 16, I think. But to think about him, seeing the movies that he'd been in and just being the one of the 10 biggest icons in the history of motion pictures. At that time, he was probably one of the three biggest icons in the history of motion pictures. But uh, that's probably the closest I've been to being starstruck. And that's coming from someone who's been to the White House, who mm. you know, met the president, met the vice president. Uh, uh, but John Wayne was different kind of ballpark when you think about something like that. So um, I'll probably have to go with the Duke. That was obviously before they had selfies.
1: Oh, definitely <laughs> The, the selfie of Chris and John Wayne is lost in history, unfortunately. Oh, boy. You
2: know, boy. Yeah, I don't get excited very much over famous people. Uh, the ones that are today, you know, they don't register much. But being a kid of the 70s when I was a really young boy, I still remember the Reggie bar. And uh, Reggie Jackson was at his peak. So, you know, several years later, I'm, uh, I mean, I'm at Yankee Stadium covering the Rays and Lou Pinella. And it was a it was a morning before a game. There was nobody around, and I'm in the Lou's office with another rider, actually. And then Reggie Jackson comes in, and for the next 30 minutes, he tells me and this other rider all these stories about him and Lou, and wanting us to write about how Lou deserves a better team in Tampa Bay, and we need to get on the owner and you know get him better players. And of course, Reggie doesn't read the papers back then because that had been written over and over. But, uh, <laughs> it was just sitting there. I remember that memory is one sitting there watching Reggie Jackson for 25, 30 minutes, kind of just make his appeal to these two riders from Tampa as Lou Pinella sat back in his chair. Uh, it is, you know, morning flip flops kind of bemused by the whole whole scene. So that's when it sticks out because I was a, I was a Reggie fan back in the day and, uh, He's quite the uh, bigger-than-life personality. Even now, I think he's in his 70s, and he's still pretty
0: visible around the Yankees. Adam, have you ever heard of Reggie Jackson?
1: I do know Reggie Jackson, yes. Thank you for your condescension. It's certainly appreciated. I I will add before we wrap here that I think mine, and I was thinking about this a lot, but I think a lot of it, like you said, both of you actually referenced this. It goes back to age and where you are in your life and relative to how you perceive people. I think I was 15 when I was a ball kid for the NBA All-Star Game in Atlanta. And during the, it was the the practice for the skills competition, I was manning my station and Stuart Scott walked by. And you have to remember, you know, if you're an aspiring sportscaster in the early 2000s, Stuart Scott is a huge deal. And I I stopped and I, I said hi to him. And he said, what's your name? And I, I literally struggled to get out my name. I think I said my full name just because I, you know, he didn't need my full name. But that's just when you're in that moment of you don't even know what to say. Uh, that was a, a really, really memorable moment. I can still remember trying to mutter the words Adam Schick and struggling to do so. So uh, I think Stuart Scott, I think that that takes the cake for me. Because again, I was young. You're in a different place. And, you know, some of these people who are just normal people seem like they're the biggest thing in Biggest thing in the world at the time. So we're going to see some stars in Jacksonville as well on the field and the press box. Chris and Scott will be there. They'll be tweeting at Gators Scott, at Gators Chris, and they'll be posting all of their content, as always, to FloridaGators.com. Gentlemen, thank you so much. We'll see you in Jacksonville. Thanks, Adam. Booyah, Adam. Given that Florida Georgia has been played in Jacksonville in all but two years since the Great Depression, it's only right that this week's show features a native of the River City. Tyler Jordan grew up going to the game as a fan, and on Saturday he'll compete in the storied rivalry for the final time as a player. We spoke to Tyler about that surreal experience and the growth of the offensive line, but he began by telling us how the Gators utilized their bye week.
3: Um, I think the focus um, was on just individual stuff and working on technique and um, developmental stuff that you know we can work on and the younger guys can work on. It was kind of lighter in terms of reps on the older guys and the ones and kind of we stress a lot for the younger guys. That makes sense.
1: Mm -hmm. From your experience, how important is the bye week in terms of really kind of resetting things, getting your mind right, and especially getting your body? in uh, the best shape possible for this final stretch
3: i think getting the body right is probably the most important thing um in a bye week you know you go seven weeks plus the time you were in fall camp and your body is already feeling starting to feel sore every morning you get up and um i think the week weeks really good and really beneficial for us this week i probably felt as fresh as i have since probably fall camp started just (laughs) having that week
1: off It seems like the O line has really started coming together nicely the last few weeks, and you've seen the numbers with the ground game kind of showing that. How do you think your unit has grown the most since the start of this year?
3: Uh, I think um, we've matured. I think we've gotten a lot better in communication, and communicating with everybody as all five or as a whole unit on the offensive line goes a whole way. You know, I think once you're communicating and everybody's on the same page, everything runs um, a lot more smoothly than it would if we weren't talking and communicating.
1: I'm curious, the maturity part, can you explain that a little more? Because I think people look at you guys and say, oh, well, they're all upperclassmen for the most part. Aren't they mature? I mean, what what is when you talk about maturity in an O-line sense, what do you mean by that?
3: Um, not, only, not only talking about just we got older guys playing. I think that um, we've come to understand the offense more, you know, only having really half a year to do so. And I think just being able to understand the offense that was given to us in the spring, and this is a culmination of everything, I, b- I believe.
1: Not many people expected the Gators to be in the top 10 at this point, especially after what happened against Kentucky. How have you learned to handle this success as you've gone throughout the year? Because this is it's kind of unprecedented for you guys to be where you are right now.
3: Right. Um. I think that for us, we've just kept... um. Putting our nose down the grindstone and just kept going and kind of put our blinders on. I haven't really been listening to anything from the outside. I really haven't paid attention to anybody trying to really compliment us, like saying, oh, you guys are so good. You guys are top 10. I, d- I don't really pay attention to that. I try to focus on what we can do each week to get better and win more games.
1: Do you sense that some of the younger guys may get caught up in that, and, and how can you help the younger guys if if you see them maybe reading uh, too many of those headlines or, or checking Twitter too much?
3: Uh, I, I think the younger guys definitely could. Um, for me, when I was a freshman and we made it to the um, SEC championship in Atlanta, you know, I was kind of big-headed. I felt like the big man on campus. But mm-hmm. um, you know, for a lot of those young guys, you just got to tell them, hey, top ten is where we want to be. We want to be top four we want to get into the playoffs and we want to win the national championship so we've got a lot of work to kind of do you know
1: no question and uh that work will start in jacksonville and you came from jacksonville so i'm, I'm curious if you can tell us a little bit about your background growing up in jacksonville okay well um
3: so i grew up in jacksonville pretty much my whole life my family recently moved i think a year ago or so to orlando Hmm. But um, I still go back to Jacksonville to kind of see see people. For instance, during the bye week, I went um, to see my high school and see all the teachers. But you know, it's kind of special just being from Jacksonville and being able to go to the Jaguar games at that stadium and go to a couple Florida Georgias. And um, I even lived right across from the stadium um, near the river. Hmm. So
1: I think it was that stadium's kind of special to me.
3: Um, every time I go
1: back there, it's it's always fun. You talked about going back to, to visit Bishop Kenny, and I'm, I'm curious, when you started playing football, it probably wasn't in high school, when did you first get involved in the game, and, and what made you fall in love with it?
3: So, you know, I grew up watching football like most guys did, and um, kind of wanted to play. I played a couple of years of Pop Warner, but I ended up actually playing baseball for a good amount of my childhood, and then I stopped playing Pop Warner, and then high school came around in my first day of like full pads really um i laid a couple kids out and i was like hey i'm pretty good at this um, <laughs> and i originally tried out for tight ends and like defensive ends and they moved me on offense because we were a small team so i had to play both ways huh. so they moved me to from tight ends on the first day to right tackle because they said my foot speed wasn't there but i was catching everything
1: you didn't have a, a goal of being alignment i guess it's it just you just sort of uh you just sort of went that way
3: Not at the start, but I um, eventually embraced it.
1: When you started getting recruited, once you obviously made that switch position-wise, what schools were you most interested in, and why did Florida stand out to you?
3: So during my recruiting process, well, I committed to uh, Florida my junior year of high school. So I kind of told every other school that came by, you know, hey, um, I'm pretty solid to Florida. I just think that part of me growing up as a Gator fan the rest of my family being Gator fans and just that environment I was raised in went to, went to games as a kid. I always thought it was um, pretty special to
1: me. When you came into the program, which players specific guys were the most influential for you? Who, who were your, your biggest mentors as you entered the program?
3: As I entered the program, I'd have to say, um, trip Thurman and by Cam Dillard kind of embraced me once I got there and took me under their wing. And I think they showed me the ropes of everything. And, um, how to manage my time as a student and an athlete.
1: Uh, That's kind of made me who I am at this point in my college career. When, as you've gotten to to this later stage of your career, I'm sure there's other guys that you've taken under your wing. So who have you uh, paid it forward to, do you think, in this program?
3: Um, Well, we have, like, little brothers. And uh, I've Hmm. actually had two since I've been here. My first, like, little brother was Brett Heggie. And then my second one is Griffin McDowell. Try to be there for them, always hanging out with them. I think that they're going to be two great players here at Florida.
1: What, what do they turn to you for? Is it specific advice about something on the field? Is it more off the field, managing time, things like that?
3: Um, it's more off the field. I think um, my main thing is, hey, let me know if you need anything, um, you're having any trouble. Well, I'm here for you no matter what. If you need to talk, just um, hit me up, and I'll either text you or call you depending on what I'm doing.
1: How difficult was it going through a coaching change just before your senior season? And what would you say that the biggest adjustments were that you had to make when the new staff came in and, and changed things up a bit?
3: I think the biggest adjustment was um, the energy in the program. And I don't think it's like a personal like change. I think it was just the change as a whole in the program. Um, I think the energy shifted. That was probably the biggest for me. It was, uh, yeah.
1: In what ways do you think you've grown the most as you kinda of reflect over your career? How have you grown the most from when you walked on campus to today?
3: I mean, that feels like literally half a year ago. <laughs> but I know it's not and I know it's been almost four years. But I think the biggest thing that I've seen a change in myself is probably my leadership. I think that I came into the program um a pretty quiet dude and um kind of shy, I'd say as a mm-hmm. freshman and just being around a bunch of guys, uh, I have kind of had to come out of my box and be more of a leader. And I, I don't know if that's a, more of a vocal leader, but I think I've become a leader by action instead of talking, you know, mm-hmm. instead of words.
1: When, As you look back to, you know, I, I love asking older guys this question because you've got a, a nice little uh, collection of memories to choose from. But specifically, what moments stand out to you from your career when you look back? What games have, have maybe left the the biggest impression on you
3: going to probably my first sec championship game just that experience me i'm a really young little freshman um, and the week before that the coaches were like if we were playing florida state the coaches said hey we need you to start at florida state and i was just a probably 18 year old freshman not just barely being in college and like hey we need you to start a college football game in the swamp against florida state and i think that was that was probably the craziest memory even though we did lose that game yeah, and then the next game, the SEC championship was my second start, and I was—I remember having to start there, and I was like, "Holy cow!" Like I'm, I'm playing Alabama, and <laughs> you know, you mature as time goes on, but um, you get used to that stuff.
1: Just to, to give you some perspective, the stadium you played that game in has now been demolished. So, not to make you feel old, but you know, you, you have been around for a while, I guess. Oh man, <laughs> Georgia Dome is just a, a grass field now. There's there's no stadium there anymore.
3: Yeah, that does make me feel yeah. old. Holy cow!
1: <laughs> so couple final things for you i'm curious outside of football I, I know you're very much in it at the moment but when you do have time to step away w- what are some things that, that you enjoy doing
3: um i like um, fishing i enjoy whether it's offshore or inshore uh, going to catch some reds or going to catch dolphin or bass whatever it is um, i play the guitar Huh. Um, i might taught myself in high school so that's always something i kind of like to do is kick back and just pull out my guitar and um, play a couple songs or um
1: Usually play video games. Have you thought about starting a band, or are you just solo at this point? No, I'm not that good. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm nowhere near close to being that good. Favorite songs to play? Any, any? Like, what, what, what did you start playing, and, and what have you progressed to now?
3: Uh, the first song I learned to play was actually, um, Happy Birthday.
1: Ah, huh. simple enough.
3: Yeah, but um, probably one of my favorite songs to play. I like playing country music, so um, probably one of the easiest songs. Actually, I learned to play on um, the guitar. For country music, was probably Wagon Wheel. That's actually one of the easiest songs to play. It's only oh. four chords. So.
1: <laughs> I'll know if, if I try and learn guitar, I, I know where to start now.
3: <laughs> Let uh, me know if you need help. I yeah, got no, you. Thank you.
1: Thank you. I, I appreciate it. Um, getting things back to, to football to, to wrap up here. You know, the hype for this game is huge. There's really no way around that. A top 10 battle, college game day, you name it. What has the talk around the locker room been like as you've built up slowly to, to this game this weekend? We're
3: excited, uh, along with what Coach Mullen says. If you're not excited for a game like this and for a rivalry game like this, uh, you're messed up in the head. So <laughs> I think that it brings a lot of excitement. And in the back of our minds, we got to be working as hard as we can this week to have good practices so that can transfer over to the game.
1: You mentioned earlier growing up in Jacksonville, going to this game. I mean, having been a spectator – as part of the 50-50 split, the uniqueness of it, and now having been on the field for it, can, can you just speak to how special this game is to compete in and, and how it stands out?
3: Um, it's absolutely, I think, one of the most special games of the year, especially growing up in Jacksonville. and just I can go out there, I can go out on the field this Saturday, and I can go point out my seat where I've sat for the past mm. however many years. So I think it's just cool just being able to, be older and more mature and then come back to the stadium where I used to sit in the stands as a kid.
1: How do the emotions differ from a normal game when you've got one side that goes nuts, the other side's, you know, deathly quiet and then vice versa. How does that change kind of the, the flow of, of, of a game? If at all,
3: it just depends how the momentum's going um, for like personally for me, when I'm out in the fields, um, I tend to somehow drown out all the noise mm. um, and I tend to kind of focus on my job and, kind of put my blinders on and what I need to do um, during the game and what the defense gives me.
1: Final thing for you, when you look at George on tape, I know you, you've got your secrets. I'm sure there's a trick play you just worked on you can't tell us about, and that's okay. We'll, we'll see that in <laughs> due time. But in general, looking at George on tape, what are the preparations you have to make playing a team like the Bulldogs? I think we got to run the
3: ball. They've got a strong defensive front, and I think we have to be consistent all day. Um and A, running the ball, and B, um, protecting Felipe. And I think um, we stick to the game plan. We're going to be all right.
1: Well, Tyler, it's going to be an exciting one. There's no question about that. And we certainly wish you a lot of luck playing your final Florida-Georgia game in your hometown of Jacksonville.
3: Yes, sir. Thank you.
1: And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Florida, Georgia kicks off from the banks of the St. John's River on Saturday at 3.30 on CBS and the Gator IMG Sports Network. Then we'll be back next Thursday with an all new episode breaking it down. So don't miss it. Until then, I'm Adam Schick and I'll see you in Jacksonville.